Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Hey, welcome everybody from all of our campuses, Squamish, North Shore, Surrey. It's great to be together today. Love what the Holy Spirit is doing already in our gathering and uh, we're going to continue on in the theme that has been established through worship and through our response and prayer time already. And uh, why don't we pray? And then as we gather around God's word, there's a, a thought that's been in my, my mind over the last few days from a book that I'm reading. But every time a group of people gather like this, sometimes in person, online, whatever that gathering looks like, and we come around God's word, something happens And it's not something we always see in the moment, but we believe something happens, something life-giving, something transformative happens as we look to the words of God together. So Holy Spirit, we just welcome you into this space, a space that is uh, connected to living rooms and kitchens and bedrooms all across our cities God, I pray that you would come and you would speak. And I pray that what we do in these moments would not just be routine that we enter into, but we would lean into what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the words of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Do something in our hearts as we look to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are near the end of our fall sermon series, Jesus is King. And throughout this series, we've been focusing in on different and various characteristics of Jesus, our King. And we've been saying a lot in this series, this running theme that's kind of woven it all together, is that Jesus is King, but he's not the type of King many of us would have expected. He's not the King that we would maybe make in our own minds. If we were to, to, to gather together and make our characteristics of the type of King we think Jesus should be, he doesn't usually fit that mold. We've seen throughout the course of the series that Jesus is a king who says he's come to serve, not to be served. He's a king who eats and drinks with sinners, people that the religious said he shouldn't associate with. We talked last week about Jesus is a king who advocates for the disenfranchised, the untouchables, and even advocates for the oppressors. He's not the king most of us expected And perhaps nowhere is that reality more potently seen than in the text that we will look at together today. If you have a Bible, we're in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 33 is where we'll hang out together today. And and it starts like this. Let me read the first couple of verses. It says, starting in verse 27, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say one of the prophets. So here's Jesus on a journey with his disciples, which was common. And on the way he would teach and he would ask questions and he would live life with his disciples. And he asked them a question on the way on this particular journey. He says, hey guys, who do people say that I am? In other words, he's saying, well, what have you heard about me? What are the whispers on the streets? What, what are your family and friends saying? What do you hear about me? And so they answer the question. Well, Jesus, 
Some people think you're John the Baptist, which is kind of weird because you're not. Some think that you're Elijah. Some think that you're one of the prophets. They start spilling the answers that they've heard. These are the things that we hear people saying. That's what my family member thinks. This is what this person thinks. These are the things that we've heard. But then Jesus gets to the real question. Jesus is brilliant at this as a, as a teacher and as, as one who disciples. Is he, he, he leads us to where he actually wants us to go. The first question was really meant to lead to the real question. Because he wasn't actually concerned about what the disciples had heard other people say about him. He wanted to know their answer to the same question. And so in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says this, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? This question that Jesus asks his disciples really is the question. It's the question for all of us. This is the most important question any of us will ever answer in our lives. It's a question that all of us must answer. And this might sound like a bold statement, but I believe that everything in our life hangs on our answer to this question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? That's the most important question any of us will ever wrestle with. The most important question any of us will ever answer. But here's what a lot of us do. We, we take a question like that and it's a bit confronting. It feels like, man, there's, there's a lot to it. So what we tend to do is we, we, we try to make that question have a multitude of right answers to it. And so we maybe change the question just slightly and we might ask it, well, we might say, well, who is Jesus to you? Or, or what is your Jesus like? Have you ever been in a conversation where someone says, well, my Jesus would never do that? It's like, where did you, what do you mean your Jesus? What does this look like? We, we try to answer the question in a way that says, well, you can have a right answer and you can have a right answer and you can have a right answer and I can have my right answer. And on one hand, there, there's this beautiful element to this in this fact that Jesus wants a relationship that's so real and so personal with each of us that we could all have a unique way that we answer that question. But the substance to our answer matters. There is a right and wrong answer to this question, who is Jesus? The truth is that Jesus cannot be whoever we want him to be. We see over and over again throughout the Gospels that Jesus, in the way that he asks questions, in the statements that he makes, he forces people to decide what they believe about him. He doesn't leave us a lot of space to just decide for ourselves because of the things that he said and did. And as you read the Gospels, you get these confronting moments with Jesus. Many people just wanted Jesus to be just a good teacher. He, he taught some nice principles. Well, some of us just want Jesus to be an inspirational figure from history. There's some stuff we can learn from his life and the way that he lived. But Jesus doesn't leave us that option. Jesus doesn't leave us with that to be the final answer because Jesus did things and he said things that leave us with one really important decision to make about him. And it's not, is he just a good teacher? Was he just a real historical figure? Is he just someone that I can take some cues from in my life? The, the, the decision we need to make about Jesus is, is he God or is he not? Like, that's a big thing to decide. No one's ever had to make that decision about me. 
And no one's ever had to make that decision about you. We know that you're not God. I know that I'm not God. But Jesus forces us into this decision about him. He's either he's God or he's not. And the implications of that are massive and widespread. Because if he's not God, then you can make him whoever you want him to be in your life. But if he is God, then we don't have the choice whether we make him king and Lord or not. If he's God, the implications are everything. Now, none of us come to know or understand all of who Jesus is all at once. And so you can take a deep breath because that's really good news for us. It's a process. Just like any relationship that you have in your life, even though the relationships I've had the longest in my life, I'm still learning about that, those people. I'm still coming to understand who they are and how they're wired and how this works. And it's as we follow Jesus over the course of time that we come to understand and live into all that he is. And this was even true for his first disciples who were with him in the flesh that, that lived with him every single day. They didn't get it all at once. They didn't understand the fullness of who they were following and giving their lives to all at once. They often misunderstood Jesus. They often misplaced their priorities with Jesus. But slowly, they started to understand with Jesus' help just exactly who he was. The answer to that question, who do you say that I am, would have changed over time as they began to understand fully who this man was. This, this Mark chapter 8, is one of those moments where it clicks. One of those moments where they come to a new depth of understanding of who Jesus is. It's finally starting to click. And we notice because Peter nails the answer to this question. At the end of verse 39, Peter answers the question, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one that the prophets have foretold about. You're the one that, that our, 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 my parents talked to me about. It was the one that would come one day. You're the Messiah. You are the King of Kings. Now, Matthew, the gospel writer, also records this conversation, and he makes a few extra notes about Jesus' response to Peter's answer to this question. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 and 19, it says this, But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Put all of that another way. Peter, you aced it. You nailed it. Peter, you got it. This is the right answer. You see in this moment that Peter and the rest of this, the disciples are finally starting to understand the true identity of their rabbi, the one that they've been following. This is a powerful moment. I mean, I can imagine Peter, he's just like walking a bit taller, maybe chest out a little bit, maybe like looking at some of the other disciples, be like that side-eyed. It's like, I got the answer right. Like, look at me. But in true Jesus fashion, after this incredible moment that the disciples have, 
Jesus goes ahead and then confuses them all over again. Because yes, he affirms Peter's confession. He says, you're right, Peter, I am the Messiah. Yes, Peter, I am the king. But I'm not the type of king that you're expecting. I'm the king above all kings. I am the one that you've heard about since you were a little boy. But I'm not going to look like you think I'm going to look like. This whole journey that we're on is not going to be exactly as you imagined. So Jesus will pick back up in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says this, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Talk about a turn of events. Like, have you ever had one of those moments where it's like you feel like you're nailing it and all of a sudden it just comes crashing down all around you? You'd be like, I thought I was good and now I've messed it up. Like in, in one moment, Peter's getting like this gold star from Jesus. You nailed it, you aced the test and now Jesus is calling him Satan in the next breath. That's a tough look. You don't ever want to be called Satan by Jesus, just in any case. But we have to put ourselves in Peter's shoes for a minute and understand just how crazy this all would have sounded to him. Because again, for Peter's entire life, he would have heard the predictions about the Messiah who was to come. And he, like the rest of the Jewish community, would have had their, in their minds the type of king this Messiah would be. They likely pictured this military leader a liberator, one who would set the people free from the oppression of the Roman Empire. The Messiah that Peter had in his mind would not come to suffer and be killed. The Messiah was meant to defeat the enemies of Israel. The Messiah was supposed to reestablish the kingdom to Israel. No one yet in all of Israel's history to this point had connected the Messiah to suffering. This was a new idea. How would the Messiah defeat evil? How would the Messiah liberate people if he were to die? This didn't make sense to Peter. This is why he rebukes Jesus in such harsh language, because it didn't connect. It didn't make sense. The key to what Jesus is saying here is found in one word, and it's the word must. It says that the Son of Man must suffer is he must be killed and after three days rise again. He must. Timothy Keller, in writing on this passage, says this, by using the word must, Jesus is also indicating that he's planning to die, that he's, that he's doing it voluntarily. This would have been the hardest part for Peter to wrap his mind around. Because listen, even great kings die. Many even died fighting for a great cause. That made sense. But Jesus says, the reason I have come is to die. It's not going to be a byproduct of what I do. The reason I have come is to die. And that's a big difference. Again, Timothy Keller speaking to this idea. He, he writes this. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah, the King. But I came not to live, but to die. I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm not here to rule, but to serve. 
And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. Must is one of the most significant words in the story of the world. And it's a scary word. What Jesus said was not just, I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be renewed and nor can you unless I die. Jesus' death, he's saying, he says, I must die. My death is necessary, both for you and for the renewal of the world. And so the question we must ask ourselves is this, is why is it necessary for Jesus to die? How does his death open a way for the world to be renewed? For just a few moments, I want to look at three reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. The first is this, it was necessary for love. It was necessary for love. One of the traits that all of us share, no matter where we find ourselves in life, no matter what city we live in, one of the traits we all share is a deep and real desire for unconditional love. It's hardwired into us as human beings. From the time we're children, we're searching for this kind of expression of love. We all long to both give and receive love that has no strings attached. The problem, however, is that on our own, human beings are incapable of giving true and unconditional love to one another. Because all of our love is conditional, at least to some degree. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll know that this is true. We give love to others as long as I know that I'm getting something back. As long as there's something in it for me in this exchange. We do this all the time, even with those that are closest with us. We'll give love, but we're looking for what it does back to us. We gravitate towards people whose expression of love will affirm us, will, will fill our tank, will give us something in return. And in love, we're constantly hedging our bets with those that we give love to because we fear the pain of the unmet expectations of love. This is our expression. This is the, the, the reality of what we live in. This is the difference between true love and false love. In false love, the goal, at least to some level, is me and my joy. That's the kind of love I give all the time. Even to those like my, my children at some level in my humanness, I want something in return from them. I want to feel something from them. But true love, in true love, the goal is the other person's joy, full stop. Their joy is my joy. True love is given regardless of if it's ever reciprocated. And in true love, nothing is held back. And so at some level, all human love is false love. Because you and I cannot fully remove our own desires to get something from the equation. This isn't to say that we can't give love that's real. It's just that we're incapable of fully giving the unconditional love that we crave at a soul level. And so what humanity needed was to experience true love from someone who didn't need anything from us. True love. And this is what Jesus does in going to the cross. Because Jesus loves humanity so much 
that he redeems broken, sinful humanity at the cost of his own life, even though we could never give back the kind of love he's expressed to us. He loved us even though he knows we cannot do in return what he's done for us. He loves us even though he knows our love for him is full of conditions. We know this, right? How many of us, we love God when God is blessing us, when God is faithful, to, it feels like he's faithful, when it looks like he's showing up, when my bank account is full, when I'm comfortable, when everyone is healthy in my life. We have conditions on our love for God, but God loves us anyways with no condition. This is the only love that we could call perfect. And this is what makes the love of Jesus so staggering, what's so life-changing, is that Jesus does not need you and I for his own affirmation. He doesn't need us to prop up his ego. He doesn't need our love to fill some void in his heart. Jesus was and is complete in relationship to the Godhead. Daryl Johnson says this, he says that the center of the universe is a relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, complete and full, not needing anything else. He doesn't need our love. And so when he loves us, we know that there's no hidden agenda to his love because he doesn't need anything from us to be fulfilled. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you and I learn to receive and experience the perfect love of Jesus, it frees us to extend a better kind of love to others. Because I've, when I experience God's love, when I experience the love of Jesus, I'm filled up with a perfect love. And therefore, I need your affirmation less. I need your reciprocation less. I need you to do things for me less because something in my heart has been filled by perfect love, by true love expressed in Jesus. I can now simply love you for you. Flaws and all, I can just express love. Jesus' love doesn't just change us, but it also transforms us to love others in a whole new way. This is why it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross so that we could experience and know his perfect love. Second reason is this, is that it was necessary for forgiveness. It was necessary for love and it was necessary for forgiveness. When a wrong is committed to us or by us, there's a debt established by that wrong. I remember when I was a kid, I... I dented my friend's mom's car. I tried to hood slide on it and I forgot to jump and I just ran into the front fender, just two big dents, one from my hip, one from my knee. It was one of those things that we tried to cover up. We tried to like tell a story. Our story wasn't very good. About a week later, I got a call from my friend's mom. Jason, did you dent my car? And it's like the worst feeling, right? When you try to hide something like that, it's the worst. But if I were to dent your car and the bill to fix that dent was $1,000, I'm in debt to you for that $1,000. Once a debt has been established, there are two possible outcomes to resolve that debt. The first is you can make me pay for it. 
You can say, Jason, you owe me a thousand dollars and then I can pay that off and the debt is gone. Or you can forgive me and absorb the debt yourself. Either way, the debt is paid for. It's either paid for by me or it's paid for by you. This makes sense when we talk about things or money, but it applies far beyond that, this principle. What happens when someone betrays you? What happens when someone robs you of joy and happiness in your life? What happens when someone fails you? They said they were going to do something and they didn't show up. What happens when somebody talks behind your back? What happens when someone takes away an opportunity that was yours? All of these kinds of things establish a debt. And our options are the same with this kind of debt. You can try and make that person pay off the debt. How we typically try to do this is we try to inflict a similar amount of pain back on the person. Like, well, if you've done this to me, I'm going to do it back to you. And in that way, I'm going to make you pay back what you've done to me. The other option is that we can forgive and we can absorb the debt ourselves. There's nothing easy about forgiveness, is there? Forgiveness can be excruciating because we're absorbing a debt that's very real ourselves. This is why forgiveness, real forgiveness, I'm not talking about the forgiveness that we just brush it under the the rug and pretend like it's not there and just don't think about it. Real forgiveness always involves some level of suffering because debts don't simply vanish. Once a debt is established, it remains until it is paid back. The Bible says that every human being is indebted to God because of our sin. The Bible says that all have sinned. And sin always entails a penalty. Because justice demands that sin is paid for. Justice means like sin can't be overlooked. Sin can't be swept under the rug. We just can't look the other way when it comes to sin. Because justice demands that sin be paid for. The debt be uh, paid off. And so therefore, God had the same choice to make with us. He could make us pay the penalty for our sin. And he would have been right and justified to do so. But none of us could ever pay back the debt we've incurred. None of us could ever cross that gap. None of us could ever do it in our own strength. It doesn't matter how hard we worked. It doesn't matter how many good things we did in return. It doesn't matter how, many, uh, how much pendants we put on ourselves. We could not pay off the debt of our sin. So God's choice was to make us pay or he could forgive our sin by absorbing our debt himself. He could suffer in our place. Why did Jesus say, I must suffer? It's because it was the only way God could forgive us and not judge us. It's the only way. Somebody had to absorb the debt. And God and Jesus did it himself by paying the ultimate price with his own life. What kind of king does that? What kind of king pays that kind of price? What kind of king would absorb that kind of debt? What kind of king would experience such suffering so that we who were indebted to him could be forgiven? Only Jesus. It was necessary for Jesus to die 
so that we could experience forgiveness. Third reason. It was necessary to undermine the kingdoms of the world. See, at the cross, it appeared that the corrupt and evil systems of the world had won. The people who should have defended Jesus conspired together to kill him, even though he had done nothing to deserve it. The perfect man was killed at the hands of people who conspired against him. The cross reveals how corrupt and broken the systems of our world are. It reveals how different the values of the kingdom of God are compared to the values of the kingdoms of earth. The cross reveals that the values and systems of the world, they conspire to serve those in power. They conspire to oppress rather than serve justice and truth. But in condemning Jesus to die, the world condemned itself because what looked like defeat at the cross was actually victory. Because on the cross, Jesus exposes the bankruptcy of the world's kingdoms. At the cross, Jesus turns the values of our fallen world on their heads. Because Jesus didn't raise up an army to challenge the kingdoms of earth. He didn't take up political power He flipped these things on their head. He disarmed their power by giving up his life. And in doing so, he triumphed over the world. Saying these systems that we put so much trust in, look what they've done. They've killed the perfect man. Obviously, they're empty. Obviously, they're bankrupt. At the cross, Jesus exposes this bankruptcy of the world, but also reveals the true nature of his kingdom. The power and the spell of the world's systems are broken at the cross. And a new way was released into the world called the kingdom of heaven. The cross shows that even when the broken and corrupt world around us seem to be winning the day, Jesus and his kingdom will win in the end. And so as followers of Jesus, we continue to live by the values of God's kingdom, even when they seem opposite to the world around us. We, like Jesus, say we haven't come to be served and to to gain power, but we've come to, to serve. When the world says, gain more and you'll be happy when you've accumulated more things, the the kingdom people say, no, no, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When people are defending and building their reputations, we say, we'll let Jesus hang on to our reputation and we will go low. When people say that this is the way to get ahead is walking over people, we say, no, no, the kingdom, kingdom people, we walk in humility. There's a different way that is more powerful and it's better. And at the cross, Jesus undermines the kingdoms of the world. And he flips them on their head and says, there's a better kingdom. There's a better way to live. There's something more powerful and true and real that's coming into the world. It's the kingdom of God. Author Ken Costa says this. He says, strange as it sounds, Jesus' death is his coronation as king and the triumphal beginning of the long-awaited kingdom he preached about. What looked like defeat was actually victory. Jesus defeats sin. He defeats death and he undermines the systems of our broken earthly kingdoms. And he ushers in a new one, the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I must suffer and I must die. His death was necessary in order for us to know love. 
His death was necessary in order for us to know forgiveness. His death was necessary in order to undermine the kingdoms of earth. The rest of the worship team, you can get ready to join me. But maybe you have this thought. The thought might be this. Well, any king can die. There's actually nothing special about that fact. In fact, every king who has ever lived has died. So what makes Jesus' death powerful or unique? What makes the death of Jesus powerful is his resurrection. Remember, we read it and he says this, I must die and rise again on the third day. Listen, none of this matters if Jesus is still dead. All the things we read about in the gospels and the kingdom of God, none of it matters if Jesus only died. If he remains dead, at best, we have a nice example in human form of how to live, but we have no forgiveness. We have no vision of unconditional love. Evil is the victor if Jesus did not rise again. In fact, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then we should be pitied as followers of Jesus. There's no power there. Our faith is futile, he says. It's Jesus' resurrection that validates everything he said and did. It's in his resurrection that we have hope. It's because of the resurrection that we can know love. It's because of the resurrection that we receive forgiveness. It's because of the resurrection that we can know and walk in victory in the midst of opposition to the kingdoms of this world. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Any king can die, but Jesus is the only king who defeated death and he lives forevermore. And that makes him a king worth following. That makes him a king worth serving. It all hangs on the resurrection. We're gonna respond in singing in a minute. And Pastor Emma is going to lead us all in a response after we worship. We're going to sing this song. It says, what a friend we have in Jesus. And here's what's crazy. is that Jesus, King of heaven and earth, is not a king that we cannot know or approach. Jesus comes close and he calls us friend, sinners, indebted to him, all kinds of issues. He comes and he makes a way and he, he pays the price with his own life so that he can call us friends. In his life and in his death and his resurrection, he's removed every barrier so that we can know him, that we can worship him and we can call him friend. Yes, he's king, but he's also friend. So Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. I ask that the majesty and beauty of King Jesus would be magnified in our heart. And then the reality that you call us friend and you've made a way for us to be friend would start to melt the hard parts of our heart. And would we make you king again? In Jesus' name. Let's sing in response.
hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.